Support for When Dating Hurts comes from Liquid IV. Hydration doesn't get enough attention. It's not just about people running around a tennis court or doing an hour of Zumba or body pump. Proper, functional hydration is an all-day, everyday thing. And to help us stay hydrated, Liquid IV is the category-winning hydration multiplier. Sure, you can use Liquid IV before, during, and after playing pickleball, but you can also use it when you're starting to lose concentration in Zoom meetings or even after a night out with friends. One convenient stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water can hydrate you back to life two times faster than water alone, and you'll be getting essential vitamins plus three times as many electrolytes as leading sports drinks. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. My favorite flavor is Golden Cherry. It's one of 12 great-tasting flavors that make hydration pretty exciting. Real people, real flavor, real hydrating. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WHENDATINGHURTS, all one word, at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WHENDATINGHURTS at liquidiv.com. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Today, we're joined by Colleen Lelly. Colleen Lelly, Doctor of Education, is a professor in the Teacher Education Department at Cabrini University in Radnor, Pennsylvania. And she is the director of the Barbara and John Jordan Center for Children of Trauma and Domestic Violence Education. Dr. Lelly brings over 25 years of experience in the education field. She is also the author of the important book entitled Trauma-Sensitive Schools, the importance of instilling grit, determination, and resilience. And something that is super important to me, we've been friends for over a decade. Welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast today, Colleen. Thank you, Bill. That's so sweet. What a great intro. (laughs) Glad you like that. That's good. So what I'd like to do is ask you some questions based upon reading your book. And if you have some other thoughts that you want to add in, please do. In your career, you put a big emphasis into adverse children experience and their connections to health later in life. I'm curious because you've put a lot of years into this, but what was the reason you went into this direction? So interestingly, you're right. I've been in this for quite some time. I started my career with teaching preschool, but also then I moved into high school students. And so high school students, seeing them at that level, meaning they've gone through all of their years of schooling uh, and they were the special education population. So many of them, I don't like to say failed at school, but that's how they felt. They failed at school. And so at that point in time, many of them started to self-medicate with drugs or alcohol or other types of unhealthy behaviors. And so really, I, I started to see how that changed them and how that affected them 
I also, being that in the high school setting, I noticed a lot of students who were dating, some of which had positive relationships, others not so positive. So really, that turned me on to looking at societal issues and how they impacted students in the classrooms. And so really, when you look at the adverse childhood experiences and Anda and Faletti, when they first did their study, it's a societal issue. It's become this issue that really needs attention. So that's really how it started. At the time, I couldn't place a name to it and what it was. We weren't informed about trauma when in my teacher prep training back in the 90s. Of course, we did talk about child abuse and those types of things, but the broader issues that impact folks later in life that are, in fact, those adverse childhood experiences, I had really never learned about. I find that very interesting because from my standpoint, being a student, let's say, you know, being in college, being in high school, I did see somebody that misbehaved but probably thought, well, that's just the way they are. Not so much thinking, well, there's something at home or someplace else that affected them, and then they brought that into the school. Yep. And so, you know, I mean, it's just, that's the way you are. You see somebody the way they are, and you, and you don't necessarily think, well, you know, you have no idea what home is like for that person. Yep. You've kind of asked the question, what's going on at home that caused this? And that's something that I teach my students at the university level is, first of all, as a teacher, you can't take it personally, their behaviors. It's not, you know, you feel like it's directed at you. You feel like it's you as the teacher. But in essence, what I tell them is you have to put on your checklist. We're not diagnosing. That's not our job as educators. However, we could think like, what's going on here? Could it be X? Could it be Y? Could it be Z? So you kind of go through your checklist and trauma should be on that checklist. You see schools as a potential place for healing and coping. And overall, how aspirational do you think this is? I think that since the 90s, when I was in teacher prep programs, we do now see that we have trauma-informed practices embedded throughout teacher prep programs, whether it be at the undergraduate level or graduate level. So I think that's a plus. The other interesting thing and the, the other aspirational piece of this that I'm really happy about is that a number of states are becoming trauma-informed states. And so they're embedding trauma-informed practices across everything. What I mean by that is we look at communities and when we think about the way in which communities are impacted by trauma, how are we responding to traumas as a community? So I think that's another positive piece. And then one more additional is that a number of schools and a number of states have said, we're now going to make sure we have social workers in either every school, every district. They're increasing the number of social workers in the school system, which I think is another positive direction. And so I like to think and hope and aspire that this is going to be something that continues to catch on, that we continue to look at adverse childhood experiences and see how prior to age 18, how that can affect a child or an individual's life for the rest of their life. And with that said, though, we know that through the research that not all lost. We don't just throw up our hands and say, oh, well, they had adverse childhood experiences. It is what it is. We have learned that there is different types of therapy. There's different types of ways in which we respond to trauma that can certainly help that person individually. 
Let me go back to something you said earlier in your answer, and that was that you said a number of states, but I recall from your book, it's not a very large number, is it? Isn't it like 11 states? Yes. And so it's interesting. Since then, since the publication came out, I don't know the number. That would be something as I'm writing down to, I need to look, but they are increasing. And I know for a fact that the social workers, that has definitely increased since the publication. That's a positive step. Yeah. Someplace it's mandated. Someplace it's, is what's called encouraged, right? Correct. That's always a tricky word. I ran into that some years ago, trying to get a, a law passed in Maryland. And after it was uh, there was enough redactions and markdowns, it came out that this law encouraged teaching about teen dating violence in high schools. And encouraged kind of means... Uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. up to the individual school, right? Yeah, right. And to your point, unfortunately, not to get too political, but as we know, legislation and politicians change every few years. So it depends on, I guess, the person's interest, the individual's interest, who is in fact in politics at the time. Yeah, that is the that is the football. <laughs> We're doing this in 2023. Do you think today's teachers have a good grounding in domestic violence, the kind that children might be facing at home? I mean, do you think across the board that they are getting better and better at seeing past the behavior and detecting what might be going on from a domestic violence standpoint? That's a great question. And and we've learned, right, that from the research and from just being in this field that there, again, there's a number of behaviors that you may witness as a teacher that would indicate a child has either witnessed domestic violence and or if it's a person of dating age, they are in fact in a relationship themselves that it's not healthy. It's an unhealthy relationship. I would like to think that teachers are getting better at that. Again, I think that it does depend. I think it depends on the teacher prep programs. I think it depends on the schools and the professional development that they are providing to their in-service teachers. I think that that's something that that would be a great survey, a great research piece to see, you know, what type of programming is done at a lot of these schools across the United States. That would be great to know. I think more research is needed in that area. That's always something that when we're writing research and we're looking for recommendations for the future, I think that that's one for sure in this area. So this problem, you know, this kind of kids coming from turbulent, traumatic, maybe uh, with domestic violence mixed into it, coming from homes that, or, or environments, let's say, that have that going on. How big is this problem that you focused on? And what I mean is that, can you give us a sense or anything approaching a percentage, a feel for how many kids are coming from that kind of world? Are we talking um, 10, 20, 30% of kids? That's another great question. So what the research has shown and the numbers have not changed every time people have replicated the study, that one in three women have been affected by domestic violence, one in seven males. If you think about that from a classroom perspective, what I say is to my teachers, if you have a class of 20, I still would say one in three. It could be more. And there were numbers that I want to say that there was like numbers, something like one to three million. It was like a wide range of children are affected by domestic violence and every year. That research was, again, I want to say it's over 20 years old. And so that's research that would need to be that that would need to be redone for sake of a better word. I usually just stick with the one and three and try and stick with with that number. It's a much more manageable number when I'm trying to explain it to pre-service or in-service teachers from a classroom perspective. 
When you say one in three, is that one in three? I mean, domestic violence obviously falls into different areas of emotional, physical, sexual. That one in three, does that point to any one of those three parts or is that some, does that encapsulate all of them or is that just physical? From my understanding, it encapsulates all of them. Okay. And then it does get granular if you look at the state level. I was just looking at numbers for Pennsylvania and for a presentation I have to do. And they were saying that it was one in three are affected by domestic violence. And then it was something like one in five severe, severe domestic violence, physical domestic violence. The numbers, again, not to get political, but the interesting numbers that I have found is that the connection with the firearms. Yes. So those numbers are really interesting. You know, the those that have been in a domestic violence relationship and those that have firearms in the house and and how many murders have been committed with the firearms. So that's another piece of it too. That's very interesting to look at. I know I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but just to go back to when we think about it from a classroom perspective, I usually use the one in three. So looking at Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, they had the ways in which in this past year, victims passed and 70 were shot, 20 stabbed, four beaten, five strangled, and then five by other. It's the PCADV fatality report. I'm sure every domestic violence state agency does something similar, and it gives you a breakdown by numbers per state. Support for When Dating Hurts comes from Liquid IV Sugar-Free. What do I like most about Liquid IV? Maybe it's how they make everyday hydration easier than ever. One convenient stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster than water alone. Or maybe it's the new sugar-free flavors, like white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. Or it could be Liquid IV has three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV, sugar-free, has no artificial sweeteners and zero sugar, so you get a nice sweet taste without the calories or raised glucose levels from sugar. Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier is a non-GMO electrolyte drink mix that utilizes the science of cellular transport technology to deliver water and key nutrients into your body faster and more efficiently than water alone. That way, whether you're playing a sport, doing Zumba, or you're just making your way through another day at work or at home, you stay hydrated more efficiently. And here's a nice offer. Get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any variant at liquidiv.com and use this code when dating hurts at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code when dating hurts at liquidiv.com. What can a trauma sensitive school, let's say there's a school and they decide, okay, look, this is super important. We're going to do this. We're going to learn everything we can. We're going to emphasize it. We're going to live it. We're going to reinforce it. We're going to reward people for doing it correctly. But what can a trauma-sensitive school do when a student returns home to ongoing toxic behaviors? Because it can be paradise at school, but then they wind up back at home. It's a great question. I think that, again, it just all comes down to education. So we're educating our educators, the strategies to use when the students come back to school. We're educating also the parents and the caregivers that are in the homes, you know, talking about trauma. And talking about, you know, what are some healthy behaviors that 
we could do when we're suffering from trauma? What are the unhealthy behaviors? What could happen? Uh, what are the resources that are available out there? You know, a number of organizations in the community can support individuals and families when they're they're suffering these traumas. And so a lot of times they're not made aware of those community resources. So really it's just, I think, educating, educating everybody, administrators. There's a really great, and this is kind of getting off target, but it's the ways in which communities can work together. There was an initiative that started in Texas. It's called Handle with Care. And basically the whole premise is if a police officer is called to a home in the middle of the night, through the night, it could be probably domestic violence related. I'm saying probably because a lot of times that's when, unfortunately, these calls occur. Mm -hmm. So there's children in the home. They see the children. They find out where do these children go to school. The police then contact the school in the morning and just say, hey, we were at this house last night and this child is now a handle with care. They don't go into details. They don't say exactly what happened. But then the schools are made aware that something happened with this kid last night in their home. And now we we have a, a heightened awareness. And so we can keep an eye on the, on the child. And so that's one example of the ways in which the community can work with the school system. And we can engage each other to support the student. So that's one example of something that you were alluding to, like how do schools respond is working with the community partners. That's a really great example. I like that because there's no doubt that child will bring that into school the next day. Yeah, You can't have that happen at home last night and then just kind of like get up the next day, the sun comes up and everything's just great. I'm going to school and let's have fun and learn. And it could just be that they're falling asleep at their desk. I mean, they may not have had any sleep. That's huge. Like why are you High school students, you know, they're sleeping in school all the time because of their internal alarm clock. So just understanding that, you know what, today I'm going to let the kids sleep. This is not a fight worth fighting today to have them keep their head up or even going over quietly and saying, would you like to go to the nurse and take a nap? Something just, again, just care, just care. What kinds of cues teachers might look for that might indicate ongoing trauma outside of the classroom? Unfortunately, there's no checklist that says, hey, this kid is going through trauma. It could be a range of behaviors. So when we think about the fight, flight, or freeze, we could have a student that is very timid, not engaging with peers, not engaging with the teacher, appears to be daydreaming or distracted. You could have another student who seems to quote unquote pick fights who is, you see, there's external behaviors and internalized behaviors. So you could see a whole range of those. There's another kid that perhaps they just, any little thing seems to set them off. We call it chandeliering, which means it seems like they're hanging from the chandelier. They're just kind of all over the place. So there's just so many different types of behaviors that you might see in the classroom. One that a lot of teachers go to, right, a lot of times they're like, I think the kid has ADD or ADHD. There is a a doctor, a pediatrician by the name of Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. She is a pediatrician that has worked in the area of identifying adverse childhood experiences as they're happening. She had a clinic in Bayview, California, where she had a multidisciplinary team that basically helped to diagnose children. And she said many times she would have children coming in. 
thinking that ADD and ADHD. And she's like, you know what? It can't be possible that all these kids, you know, have ADD, ADHD. It's more rare than you would think. Instead, she started looking closer at adverse childhood experiences and started realizing many of them had those. So it's really looking at these behaviors and trying to decipher what's going on. As a special education teacher, I hope that sometimes what we ask is is we ask questions about the ways in which a child may have been born, right? So how was the pregnancy? How was the birth? We ask those questions and now there are some schools that are asking adverse childhood experiences type questions. And so I think that that's important. Do parents always disclose? No. If you're saying, is there abuse in your home? They could be saying no when Mm -hmm. in fact it's happening. But are we asking those questions? And I think that that's helpful to get to to the meat of the problem. As a teacher, you think you're going in to teach English today, and then you wind up having to be a part-time detective, I guess, right? That's right. Detective, counselor, and again, it's not their job to diagnose, and that's why I tell them, and that's why school systems also need a team of professionals to help. To really augment what they're doing, and, and to people who do this all the time, you know, who are, who are thinking way beyond what they might see with their own two eyes, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So one area I wanted to talk about a little bit is the impact of domestic violence, which we have talked about that some. Without doing a big deep dive into domestic violence, which is what I do all the time with this podcast, and we could, you and I could spend hours on that, <laughs> I wanted to talk about the societal impact of domestic violence. So what comes to mind if I were to now broaden out from one, one child to society? Some of the research that I was reading recently was looking at the impact to employers. When you're in a domestic violence type of relationship, you may be missing work. Mm -hmm. You may be distracted and not be able to really focus on the work at hand. Mm -hmm. So when we look at it from a society perspective, it can impact everything, even right down to our economy in a way. And so we look at it from a a spiritual sense. The church, is the church involved? Is the church not involved? Is the church being used in a way to continue the abuse? Sometimes abusers will say, well, this is what God would want. They want you to do X, Y, Z, and you have to wait on me or, you know, whatever, whatever they're, however they're using it. Of course, there are a lot of people that get married and feel like, well, I got married. And as far as my religion's concerned, I'm, I'm with this person for life. So I just have to buckle up and take it. That's right. That's right. Uh, So there's just, it's really, there's so many ways that it impacts society. Technology is another way, you know, the way in which technology is used it could certainly be seen as a greater a greater issue. In the wrong hands, yes, it, it can. Obviously, uh, if we were talking about things like stalking or we're talking about just, you know, somebody who is trying to pull power and control techniques on the other person, obviously. When we think about our law enforcement and some of the dangers they go into, I know some of the law enforcement individuals I've spoken to have said domestic violence calls can be the most deadly for them. Yes. It can be the scariest for them. Because we understand that a person who is in a relationship, when asked, they may say, no, I'm okay. Don't hurt him. Don't hurt her. Don't take them away. Because they also understand maybe that 
this is going to impact me more later if the officers take them away. So it's just, it's a very difficult crime, domestic violence. I can see how it can have an impact really on greater society and and so many people that are involved or get involved because they're called to that house. So it can be very, very difficult when we think of it from a perspective of society. It is dangerous. And you're right. I mean, so many people are going to be hesitant to calling the police to come to the house because of what's going to come later that day or tomorrow. Circling back to what I originally said with employers, if you have an employer who's very familiar with domestic violence, they may be hesitant to even call because they understand how dangerous it is. They have to also have those community resources available so that they are doing it safely for themselves as well as the victim. There's no doubt that most of us don't know enough about how entangled these situations can get. They are difficult. As you said, they are very complicated. Oftentimes we make the mistake of doing what seems to make sense, what seems expedient. We think, well, I'll just do this and then that'll help out. And you find out, well, you didn't think about all the other things that will come behind what you're about to do. That's right. And that's why we're always on this show telling people to call a domestic violence agency and get some really good coaching or call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-SAFE because really none of us know it all. And at least you're talking with somebody who knows a whole lot more than you will probably ever know. Yes. There are so many myths about domestic violence, like it happens where there's low income, ethnic minority families, the uneducated families, uh, lower socioeconomic status families. So is that a myth or does that kind of tend towards being the way it really is? Is that a fact? It is a myth. And I think what happens is individuals who may have means, whether it be monetarily or have family and friends that they are able to seek help from, they tend to not report. And so I think that's part of the issue as well. It really does affect everyone. It is a crime that has that has no boundaries. I think some of it just has to do with resources a lot of times. I think about there's one individual in particular that I remember who was a victim. This was a working woman. She was in a high position in an organization, would go to work every day, come home tortured, and then go Mm. back to work. And ultimately, she did leave her abuser. She had means, but it's still difficult. It's not, again, for all the reasons we stated already, right? Spiritually, I have kids. A lot of times they think it'll do more damage to the kids. It's not until maybe that the kids are actually physically abused that then the abused will say, okay, this is really enough. Now it's impacting more or pets. You know, sometimes the abusers will start harming pets and that's, that's when they have enough. So it's not even, they may be beaten and they're like, well, I can control myself, but it's when it starts impacting others that Uh they'll start getting away. So I think that it depends on the resources and maybe too, the physicality of it. You know, we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Once it becomes very physical, that's when they may try and get away. They might just put up with the gaslighting, their verbal abuse for many, many, many years. And then it's when it becomes physical that they leave. I have heard that with some of the people, some of the survivors I've talked with, that they get to a point sometimes where it's like, I can put up with the emotional parts of it that's been going on for a while. I somehow get through it. Bruises come and fortunately, bruises go. But when it starts happening to my kids or my pets, 
then all of a sudden it's like, because I haven't stopped this thing somehow, it's affecting others and I can't put up with that. Yeah. Something helped them to bottom out, you know, where now they're really going to get help and they're going to make a, a safety plan. They're going to go, you know, it's just a matter of time, but they're going to bolt at some yeah, point. And that's right. Thank God they do that. What are some of the signs of exposure to domestic violence in children? Because your book mentions things like maturation, development, language, memory. So those are some of these other manifestations, right? That's right. And so when you think about being an educator, and this is some of what a lot of times we go to the EDD or ADHD, or is it a reading disability? Sometimes we have to consider that, could it be they are suffering from domestic violence? Could it be that they're affected by some type of trauma? And so this is another indicator that I try to remind, remind educators to put on their checklist. I'm seeing that they're having executive functioning, decision-making type of decision-making skills. They, they seem to struggle with those. Is that included in your list of what-ifs? And so that's something that I try to remind educators. It's not always a learning disability or the disabilities that we've been taught in our teacher prep programs. It could, in fact, be some type of trauma, domestic violence being one of them. And so that's educators need to be aware of that and they need to consider what types of behaviors am I seeing? What types of learning difficulties am I seeing? And make sure that they have good notes and good lists so that the person who is, in fact, diagnosing has the teacher's notes and has their anecdotal notes as well. What my mind was going to was that it's not always an Adderall pill, right? That's right. It's something that could be outside the realm of what we're used to diagnosing. Yes. That's something that, again, a team of a multidisciplinary team is needed. It's great if you're connecting with community partners that can support you. I mentioned Nadine Burke-Harris earlier, and she has a clinic in Bayview. And again, they're connected with the school systems, which is fabulous. It's a great model for what I think we all should be doing across the country to best support not just our, stu our children, but our families. What is her name again? Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. She has a TED Talk. She has a book out called The Deepest Well. She also was the first Surgeon General of California. Uh, she has since left that post. I'm not quite sure what she's doing right now. I think she was taking a little bit of a break, but fabulous, fabulous individual. I'd like that because it can be, try to solve a child's problem. You can jump to conclusions, obviously. If there is a team there who are really educated in this and practiced in this, there's a better chance that they're going to get to the root of what's going on. And teachers, they always try to like diagnose. I'm like, you don't want to diagnose. So yes, you need that team. Support for When Dating Hurts comes from Sun and Swell. We all love snacks, but I just discovered Sun and Swell's organic, real ingredient snacks. These are the answer for health-conscious people looking for delicious, wholesome snack experiences. Elevate your snacking with great flavor, healthy products, and get this part. Sun and Swell has a real commitment to our planet. Here's how Sun and Swell has redefined snacking. Sun & Swell is the nation's first online grocery store that is offering plastic-free packaging. No one else is doing this. You can even send used packaging back using their compostable send-back program. It's the best of both worlds. It's delicious, 100% plant-based, vegan products, 100% gluten-free, 100% real food, without added preservatives, 
and every product comes in earth-friendly compostable packaging. What's more, Sun & Swell is a woman-owned small business. It's also a B corporation, which underscores their social and environmental performance. If you're looking for a more planet-friendly pantry, shop Sun & Swell and get 20% off site-wide when you go to sunandswellfoods.com and use my code WHENDATINGHURTS, all one word, at checkout. That's 20% off your entire order when you use WHENDATINGHURTS at sunandswellfoods.com. So one section of your book gets into trauma's effects on relationships. So I'm just going to mention a little bit of it, and maybe you can talk about it, but you get into trust versus mistrust, affection versus being passive, the kids that are being frightened or they become inconsistent or unpredictable. Again, your book tries to point out that a lot of this happens away from school. Can you talk about that some? That part of the book, I delve into attachment styles. Attachment styles is something that a lot of times is researched in the social work area, sometimes in psychology area. Educators aren't educated a lot of times about attachment styles. In this section of the book, I talk about the impact and the ways in which during early childhood development, relationships are solidified or not with caregivers. And so I go over this because, again, a lot of times educators are not familiar with secure attachment and the ways in which a caregiver who is supportive, consistent, and caring, how a child will then become secure, confident, and understand that their world is safe. But sometimes you may have a caregiver who is inconsistent or even neglectful. And when that happens, a child may not develop feelings of security They don't have needs met consistently from their caregivers. And that's where we could see some problematic behaviors. And so it's really important that an individual has those early attachments. We have found that when those early attachments don't happen, it can cause later in life other types of disorders and psychological types of issues. And so I put that in here so that educators are aware how important those attachment styles may be for parents. My hope is when folks are reading the book, we're looking at pre-K to 12. And so we're looking at pre-kindergarten. So if we have folks who are in childcare settings, they could educate parents about the importance of attachment styles. So we're educating the educators. The hope is then we educate our caregivers, our parents, in ways in which they learn to have good parenting skills. It's not something that's taught. I forget what movie it is, but it's, you know, we have to have a license to have a car, have a dog, but no parent has to have a license, right? And so how do we educate people, right? And so that we break cycles when they're not good cycles. Yes. That whole part I found was stunning. Gets into some of the different topics or talk about secure or being secure based upon consistency at home. You have something called insecure avoidant. You have something called insecure ambivalent resistant. Can you talk about those a little bit and kind of decode those a little bit? Absolutely. And so again, this a lot of this work came from Bowlby's research and Ainsworth and Bell. So this is even from the 70s. It, it can be somewhat older. And van der Kolk talks a little bit more about it in his book. When we think about the insecure avoidant attachment style, the caregiver will have difficulty providing affection. They will be distant. 
And so the child in that insecure avoidant attachment would not seek attachment figure when distressed, emotionally distant, subconsciously thinks their needs won't be met. So in other words, if they constantly are getting this message from a parent that they can't provide affection, then when they need affection, they won't go to that parent or that caregiver. And that's in that insecure avoidant. In the disorganized attachment, the caregiver is passive or even frightened, right? So if we think about a domestic violence situation, so the child will have difficulty regulating their emotions. We might see a child just burst into tears and they could be confused, the child, by their caregiver's reactions at times. And again, this is a person who may be in a situation where a caregiver who is being abused In the insecure, ambivalent, resistant attachment style, the caregiver, again, is inconsistent or neglectful. And so the child will not develop feelings of security. They feel like their needs are not being met. A lot of times what happens is, I'm going to take domestic violence as an example. You'll hear a lot of times the victims will say things like, well, the child wasn't in the house when the abuse happened. They didn't see the physical abuse. They were sleeping. And so they think it's okay. Mm -hmm. But what the caregiver doesn't realize is if they're distracted, which they should be, they're going to be. Or if they jump when a child touches them, those type of messages is going to cause the child to not have a secure attachment style, even with the victim. And so a lot of times the victim may not realize the impact that they're having because they don't, they don't know this. They don't understand that the importance of being present all the time, just educating everyone about trauma and the ways in which domestic violence can cause so many different issues. Let's say there's a child and at home, that child is not getting what that child needs emotionally. Will that child become used to that? I don't get it at home. I probably can't get it anywhere. Or do you think that child would think, I don't get it at home. Maybe I'll get it somewhere else. The other part that research has told us is that any caring individual building a relationship with a child will have a positive effect on that child. So this is another reason why educators are really one of our first line of defenses, because a child, when they're in school, They can build those relationships with those teachers, which is why it's important for us to have trauma-informed practices and learn the ways in which a child may be responding in the classroom and what we can do to support the child positively. And so any relationship, what we have been told, will help to reduce that traumatic stress, whether it be a caregiver, that's positive. It could be a coach. It could be somebody in the church. It could be Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts. It could be a teacher, a bus driver. It could be the lunch lady. That's the other thing. It's not just educating our educators, but it's educating anyone who may come in contact with children about trauma. And so those positive relationships really can support a child when they're going through, whether it be one traumatic situation or it could be many. And so seeing them through those traumatic situations healthy, positive relationships can support that. Anybody can pick that child up just by 
treating them the way you'd want to be treated. No matter what you're seeing with your own two eyes, try to be the best person you can be. I think it was Gandhi that said, be the change you want to see in this world. Reach out to that child and, and you just, you don't know. You could be that person that turns that other person around, that child around, showing them that there, there can be better days. There can be people who reach out and make you feel better about yourself and about life. There's so many times teachers don't realize the impact they have. You don't know until sometimes years later when a child who's now an adult comes back and says to you, I just want to say thank you because one day you said X and it really affected me and helped me positively and it helped me to keep going. You never know. One area too that I found really kind of jumped off the pages was when you talk about bibliotherapy. Yes. I hadn't thought about that one, but I find this really fascinating. You describe it as reading to change human behavior. You talk about in your book, The Healing Power of Children's Literature. So tell me about that. I got into this because of an interest. You know, I have elementary ed, special education background. My master's degree is in reading and my doctoral degree is in reading. And so I love to read. I have witnessed firsthand the healing power of literature. When I was teaching high school, at the time, Oprah Winfrey still had her show on TV every day. And my students would go home and there was an author on there one day. He was talking about his childhood and he had a really difficult childhood. One of the students said, could we read his book? Well, it's not on a pre-approved list. I did get permission to do it as like a read aloud. So what I did was it, I used it as a reward. <laughs> I said to the students, I said, if we get done our work every day, I will read from this book 10 minutes at the end of every class. Oh, uh, that's really great. That's what we did. And then we read another book and then we read another. So it was really fascinating to see adolescents with their head in their hands elbows on their desk, just watching me read. Just taking it in. And I used to also use children's picture books to teach them different topics. So I would use them. And at first they're like, we're not babies. I'm like, well, give me a minute. Let's get through it. And so, and again, their faces in their hands, elbows on the, the desk, just watching me read. Literature has this healing power. It has this effect. When we think about domestic violence, there are children's books out there on domestic violence that many agencies will use in counseling sessions with children who have been affected by domestic violence. But there's also a lot of books out there that could be used in classrooms, but because that's the type of book you don't want to do as a read aloud. They're great books, like When Daddy Hit Mommy is a great book, but you're not going to say to a class of 20 students, let's read this book today. Mm -hmm. That's more of a book that you want to use in a counseling session, but there are a lot of books out there that talk about ways in which we can use books in a classroom to support feelings, to support ways in which we can talk about our feelings, to talk about bullying. Uh, so there's other types of societal issues. Feelings is a big one, though, because it covers so many. When you've been through a trauma, sometimes children will have difficulty pinpointing their emotion. So when you read books on different types of emotions and the ways in which we can convey our feelings and ways which we can do that in a healthy way mm -hmm. instead of maybe physically hitting somebody, those are the types of books that you can use. And that has a healing power for children. And your book has a list of those, right? Yes, there is a list to support children of various traumas on our 
on the Jordan Center website, Cabrini University Jordan Center's website. We also have them there. We have adolescent literature. We have books that talk about growth mindset and the ways we can persevere and be resilient. So there's a there's lots of different books for lots of different areas that are covered. That really is an eye-opening area. Yeah, there's there's something about the power of story. You get caught up in a story. I feel like that you kind of get caught up in some story, but you're you're getting a lot with it. Yes. Bibliotherapy, I just think, is brilliant. You know, it's it's a nice way to deliver great information about what's really going on in life and how to understand things maybe differently and better. So I just think that that's wonderful. The term bibliotherapy, actually, it started many, many years ago, I think in the 40s. And then over the years, the term people turned away from it because they didn't like that whole idea of therapy being in there, Uh, especially in the education field. So now a lot of times they just say using children's literature to support whatever it is. I personally like the term bibliotherapy. I think it has that healing aspect. Yes. Right. I think that unfortunately... Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves when we use words that not everyone likes. And so bibliotherapy is a term. It was when I did my research, my dissertation, I had to, in fact, talk about that history, the historical perspective of bibliotherapy in that term. Let's say there is a school. They make the decision that we're going to go after this. We're going to put everything into this. Some of the things that your book talks about that children would experience if uh, a school were to really wrap its its cumulative arms around that. They would be schooling, they would be learning in a very positive school climate. They would feel safe, valued, cared for. They would be engaged in great learning. You know, their learning would increase in a, in a big way. And obviously then the climate of respect would be there. Your book talks about that. So it's kind of this idyllic world, but based upon where schools might be today and at least Stepping a bunch of steps in that direction sounds like a really good thing, right? So it's interesting, you know, there's so many pieces that go into having a trauma-informed school. There are frameworks now that can be used to help support that. The National Child Traumatic Stress Network, I believe, has some of those frameworks listed. But then there's also positive school climate frameworks. In fact, Maryland has the safe and support schools. I think they have an assessment that looks at positive behavioral supports in the school. There's a National School Climate Council framework that's available. There's also the Safe and Supportive Schools model. So there are a lot of frameworks. So it seems like a hefty push at times for um, schools, but there are a Mm -hmm. lot of frameworks that are available to support them as they take this on. And then the other piece that, you know, I recommend is just connecting with those community partners. There's so many different community partners. I I think about in my own community, we have domestic violence agencies. We have agencies that support education of child abuse. We have others that support those that may have food insecurity issues. So really connecting with those different community partners is really a great help to a lot of these schools and districts. If everybody sees this as a path to better days for everybody, really, you know, not just the kids, but really for everybody. If everybody gets on board with that community, the schools, the the parents, that can only make things a whole lot better, probably in a very short period of time, I would think. That's right. Your book talks about, and part of your title talks about, teaching resilience, grit, and determination. I'll pick this right out of your book here, but it says uh, resilience, 
means adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress. It means rebounding from adverse situations. So resilience, I know you've put a big emphasis on that at the Jordan Center over the last few years too. Yes. And this has really taken off and the whole idea of resiliency. In fact, the Sesame Workshop, if you go to their website, they have a lot on learning resiliency, something called growth mindset, videos and resources for caregivers and also schools to use with young children. Resiliency also means to me, as I explained to educators, looking at a child who goes home to a house that might not have heat or they may not have enough food, telling a child to be resilient can also kind of, I hate to say, be a smack in the face, but could also be a way in which we're not being supportive. So we have to be careful too how we use the term resilience. Also recognizing that they are resilient because they're going through these difficulties, telling them, but you are resilient and here's why. So identifying that and telling them that, not just saying be resilient. Mm -hmm. You know, we have lots of posters we put in the classroom that say be resilient, but identifying it to them that you were resilient when you did, or you are resilient because. So I think that that's the biggest takeaway that we can teach our educators is to use it in a positive way and teach the student that you are resilient and this is how you've been resilient. But I do identify what resilience is. There's a lot of different ways in which it's been defined, but also when we think about it, providing realistic expectations. So again, if they've been through traumatic experiences, discussing the expectations for them, letting them know that it's okay to have feelings, whatever they're feeling, letting them know that. Also, when you have school systems and you have students working in groups, fostering that group cohesion, teaching them how to work together in groups, that's a piece of resiliency. Identifying that self-efficacy and hardiness, telling them what they've done and how it connects to that positive mindset. A lot of times children will say, well, I can't do that. I, I, I'm not good at math. Instilling that power, they call it the power of yet. And in fact, Sesame Workshop has the power of yet. It's a video. It's a very cute video. Well, I'm not good at math and saying yet. I can't write this. I, I don't know how to respond to this book in writing. And you say, okay, yet. You don't know how yet. We're going to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. That whole idea of learning is a continuous, constant, cyclical event. And so being able to teach them the power of yet, that's resiliency. That's a growth mindset. And it has to be taught. And that's part of that whole idea of social emotional learning, which goes into a trauma-informed school. So how are you teaching these social emotional learning skills? So I know that was a long-winded answer, but resiliency, it's unpacking all of these pieces and making that impact on that child in the classroom. It's acknowledging that you're not there now, but you will be there because you want to be there and how great you'll feel when you get there. That's right. That's really huge. That's the yet part. Now, you also talk about grit, which is defined in your book as passion and perseverance, working hard, persevering through struggles or failures, and then trying again, which I guess really, I mean, these really are, uh, these, these pieces really fit together nicely. Yes. And so that grit is that whole idea too of that growth mindset, right? Keep going. You don't have it yet. 
no baseball player in Major League Baseball, MLL, have they been able to say, well, I'm just good at it. I don't practice. So we're always practicing. Yes. And then also the third part being determination, which is obvious. I mean, you have to have really strong determination. Yeah. I think that one of the things, and you and I have talked about this a lot, that no one is meant to go through everything alone. And so whatever it is that you are struggling with, if it's domestic violence, you know, contacting an agency, reaching out to a support system, which might be hard because perhaps, you know, we know with domestic violence, sometimes they're isolated, but school systems can be a place of support as well and reaching out to them and they can help connect with community resources. So if you're struggling with maybe food insecurity or maybe you're struggling with somebody in your family who has a chronic illness, there are so many resources out there. Using those resources, I think, is so important. I was on the board of a domestic violence agency and co-president of that board. And even myself, when I had friends who would come to me with domestic violence needs, I would still reach out to the agency to get the support to make sure that because each case is also individual and domestic violence. So here's this case. Am I treating this case appropriately? Mm -hmm. And so, so many times when there's these societal issues, each one has to be handled with care and each one is individualized. So how do we how do we support them individually, holistically, and make sure that we're providing all the resources that are available? So many people I've talked with on this podcast have talked about feeling so alone. They don't know. Well, for one thing, they don't want to run around telling everybody what's going on at, the, at their home. Yeah. But besides that, they just feel like in many ways they have to kind of keep it to themselves. They don't tell their siblings. They don't tell their parents oftentimes. They don't tell their friends. They're embarrassed by it. They're hurt by it. You know, they keep going it alone. And we keep saying, try to find that moment when you can reach out to a friend and maybe through your friend or you get to a domestic violence agency, or if you can do it yourself, if you can call or stop in, please do it. Don't do it alone because you want out of this. You want a path out and the path out is going to be made a lot clearer and will happen if you reach out and get help. So that's really important. I agree 110%. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us today. The area you focused on in your career and have written about in your book, which again is entitled Trauma-Sensitive Schools, The Importance of Instilling Grit, Determination, and Resilience. That book is on Amazon, so anybody listening to this who wants to go after it, look up Colleen Lally, Trauma-Sensitive Schools, and you will find it. Your book, Trauma-Sensitive Schools, can lead to the answer that answers the big perplexing question What can we do to get ahead of the trauma and domestic violence in this world? In talking with you and with your book that you offer solutions that can work only if school systems believe in them, adopt them, and maintain them, because it's one thing to think about it and talk about it. It's another thing to do it. So I commend you for all your years of research and hard work invested in this direction. And want to thank you for your time and attention you've put into tangible domestic violence work in the field. You mentioned being the co-president for the board of directors of Laurel House, the largest DV agency in the Philadelphia area. So thank you for appearing on the When Dating Hurts podcast today. I wish you continued success and boundless energy. I know you already have that, but it doesn't hurt to have <laughs> boundless. And I have to come out and say it's been an honor to have you on here with us today. Thank you so oh, much. Bill, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for all of your work that you're doing. What you have done and the number of lives you've impacted is, it's just, we can't even imagine and we can't even count them. So thank you. 
I appreciate that very much. And from time to time, someone will come up and give me a little pat on the back and I'll say, look, there really is no scoreboard. And I'm happy about that because that way I stay focused and you're focused and you just hope that lots of good comes from what you're doing and what you're enabling other people to do. So it feels good doing this and and the pats on the back just indicate that it's probably doing some good out there. The feedback is welcome. Thank you so much, Bill. You too. Thanks to my guests for offering their stories on the When Dating Hurts podcast. This is your platform where victims, survivors, and others who have experience with domestic violence can freely add what they have witnessed. Through these stories, although challenging to listen to, we underscore the prevalence and horrific behavior of abusers over their targets and victims. With knowledge comes enlightenment and empowerment. If you feel your story should be included on this podcast, please email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. Thank you.